The title of this message is The Joy of His Supremacy. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. And I want to start this morning with John chapter 3, verse 31 through 36. So let's, let's open your Bibles. John 3, 31 through 36. Let me read this to you. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. Desiring, Father, to even greater understanding. A greater understanding of how you are above all. We want to be able to see and understand your supremacy. And Father, Lord, we want to be moved by the fact that you are supreme above all. Lord, that you are our great creator and our great sustainer. Father, Lord, help us this morning see that truth, help us understand it, and help us be able to respond to it in a way that would exalt you and exalt your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I wanted to give you guys a little story. But before I give you that little story, it's actually a kind of long story. Um, <clears throat> I want to actually uh, set, set the mood for you guys, okay? And in order to do that, I just wanted to share with you that me and my wife, um, in our relationship, we have embraced meeting with our pastors and home group leaders as couples. And... Uh, this is what we call here at Palm Vista couples accountability. See, this would be a time in which we get together to speak into each other's lives and to encourage one another. My wife and I are extremely blessed by this time that we bless with these couples. Now, on January 4th of this year, my wife and I were scheduled to meet with Al and Desi Pino for our bi-monthly meeting. So, they pick us up around 6.30 p.m., and at the first, and the first thing that I noticed was that Al was just extremely joyous and happy. Now, Al is a very happy and joyous man, but he, it was just extremely joyous and happy. The second thing that I noticed is that he had his hideous Gator, Florida Gator t-shirt on. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, 
Alice, our senior pastor, and he is a very joyous and happy man. Let me repeat that to you guys. But he also is a huge Gator fan. And it just seemed a very fishy for me. It seemed kind of fishy for me just how joyous and happy he was that day wearing his Florida Gator t-shirt. So we get in the car. He tells us, well, have you guys ever been to Panera Bread? And uh, I was like, man, you know, I've, I've seen it. Never been there. Never been to Panera Bread. So he's like, okay. So what do you say? We go there. We take a bite to eat. And then maybe, you know, we can just get a, take a walk. Okay, that sounds great. So the whole time driving there, Al is happy, he's joyous, and he is mocking me. He's actually telling me, hey, Jose, why don't you wear that gator t-shirt that I brought you that's in the back seat? Now let me inform you guys of something. I am uh, a fan, a big fan, in fact, of a, more, of a much superior school <laughs> than you. So, so he's mocking me because it just so happens that this same week was the week in which the Collegiate Football National Championship game was here in Miami. And as all you guys know, he's made it well known to us, the Gators were in town. So after 20 minutes of driving, I'm like, bro, where are you going? You see, I have never been to Panera Bread, but I knew that there was at least three locations that were closer to Miami Lakes <laughs> than the one that he was going to. So he's driving to Hallandale Beach, and I'm like, where are you going, Al? Well, he says, I thought it'd be nice for us to eat, and I thought it'd be nice for us to take a walk in the beach. Now, this definitely sounded strange. It was just getting stranger and stranger by the minute. So we get to Panera Bread, we eat, and we talk, and as soon as we're done, Al is rushing us out to the van, and he's like, all right, you guys, are you guys ready? So at this time, Desi steps in, you know, she's very quiet, she steps in, and she's like, honey, where are we going? And he's like, well, I thought I'd take you guys by the Diplomat Hotel in Hallandale Beach, which happens to be a very prestigious place and we can walk on the sand and look around. Now, nobody in the van was aware of a very tiny coincidence. You see, it just so happens to be that the Florida Gators were staying at the Diplomat Hotel. So, Al storms into the parking lot, he gets us out of the car, we cross the road through this bridge that goes from one side of, 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 uh, of the street to the other side of the street into the hotel. We go into the place, and man, it was like being in hell for me. <laughs> you see, everybody's wearing these ugly blue and orange t-shirts. There are signs everywhere. I was like a kid in a candy store. He's looking around for Tebow and Meyer. So we walk across this beautiful place and we go out to the pool area and there's no Tebow and there's no Meyer. We can't find them anywhere. So we leave the building back to the parking lot and we happen to meet an older gentleman as we are walking to the, par to the car. So we start talking to this older gentleman and Desi and, and, and my wife, 
They keep walking. So we stay behind at quite a distance talking to this old timer. And he says to us, I was just talking to Coach Meyer. Alice like, what? Are you serious? Where? The guy's like, well, he's, he's, uh, he's at the bar inside the hotel. So Al looks at me and says, I have to see him. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, Al. All right, let's go. So at this time, our wives are like way ahead of us, almost getting to the car. So Al is like, Desi, Desi, come back. Our dear wives hurry all the way back. We go in the hotel, find the bar, and sure enough, there he was in all his glory, Coach Urban Meyer. Al's joy was complete. Now, I know that we can all give testimonies of Al's superior love of his Savior. But we can also all relate to Al in his love for the Gators. You see, all of us go out of our way to rejoice in the excellencies and superiority of others. You see, maybe football is not your thing, but as we, but as we in this world hate to admit our inferiorities, we also like to watch and get joy of people magnifying their superiority over us. You see, we find joy in athletes who are superior to us in their sport. We find joy in musicians who are superior to us in their music. We find joy in writers who are superior to us in their writing. We find joy in filmmakers and actors who are superior to us in their directing and acting. We find joy in chefs who are superior to us in their cooking. In fact, I'm going to be finding much joy this afternoon after, after I get out of here. But these wonderful things are just a picture into our DNA. They reveal to us why we were created. You see, we were created. We were made by God to get our deepest joy, not from being supreme ourselves. But we were made by God to get our deepest joys from enjoying His supremacy. Brothers and sisters, God is supreme in every way. And if we were to give a short definition to the supremacy of God, I think it would go like this. God is the only being who has no beginning and no end. Therefore, everything else and everyone else is dependent on Him for existence and for value. And is therefore less valuable than God. And I believe this morning God the Father through the work of God the Holy Spirit wants to exalt the supremacy of God the Son in order that we may find our deepest joy in the supremacy of Christ. Palm Vista, God desires that we would find our deepest joy in the supremacy of Christ. This morning we resume in our exposition of the Gospel of John. We find ourselves at the end of chapter 3. Now from the very beginning, the evangelist sets this tone and this purpose of this gospel. The purpose is for the audience, which includes us here today, 
to see Jesus for who he really is, God of overall, and for us to receive the fullness of his grace, which happens to be grace that is upon grace. In other words, it is grace that is superior to the grace that, that we had received in the law through Moses. See, in John 2, 1 through 11, Jesus provides new wine that vastly surpasses anything that contemporary Ju- Judaism could afford. And he presents useless the stone jars of purification. In John 2, 12 through 25, Jesus displaces the temple and thereby reveals that the temple's proper role is best seen as the anticipation of that place of mediation which is found only in Christ. In 3, 1 through 21, Jesus fulfills prophecies of a water and spirit rebirth and proves to be the ultimate anti-type of the snake lifted up in the desert. And in our text this morning, it is no different. But even though it is no different, I can also say it is unique. And let me explain that to you. I say it is no different in that it shows us Jesus surpassing of John the Baptist and any baptism of a baptism or rite of purification he may represent. We see Jesus moving to the forefront as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, which are represented by John the Baptist as the Old Testament-styled prophet. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He represented everything before Christ. But at the same time, there is something unique here. It is unique in different ways. In fact, It is the only account that we have in all the Gospels that narrates for us this overlaps between the end of John the Baptist's ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Therefore, it creates what seems to be a dispute. But primarily, in light of this apparent dispute, I believe it is unique because it gives us a response to Christ and His supremacy that we haven't seen up to now in the first three chapters. You see, we already knew that Jesus and his ministry was greater than John the Baptist in his ministry. The Baptist told us himself in chapter 126, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In fact, we all knew that John the Baptist's ministry was to point people to Christ and that his ministry would come to an end because he told us in chapter 129, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Not only does this text, guys, show us Christ's supremacy over John, but it goes further. This text also shows us how we should rightfully respond to his supremacy. The question the text is answering for us this morning is how do you respond to his supremacy? Palm Vista, how do you respond to his supremacy? Are you frustrated by it? Are you tempted to complete, to compete with it? Or are you rejoicing in it. But before we can answer these questions, let's look at why is Christ supreme? And that's the reason why I started reading on verse 31. 
I started reading on verse 31 because after this dispute and after we see the response of the disciples and we see the response of John, John the evangelist, the writer of this gospel, gives us a summary. He gives us a summary of what Christ's supremacy looks like and why he is supreme. And here we see that Christ is supreme in origin because of where he has come from. You see, Jesus comes from above, from heaven. Jesus is from above. We see that Christ is supreme in word because he speaks God's words in the fullness of the Spirit. And he gives testimony of heavenly things. We see that Christ is supreme in resource because he is the beloved son of the Father. Everything the Father possesses has been placed in His hands. What I mean by resource is he is, he is supreme in all authority, in all power. Because it has all been given to Him by the Father. Christ is supreme in life because only through Him can anyone receive eternal life. So now that we've seen, even though in the order of the text, it's actually towards the end. But now that we've seen the explanation by John the Evangelist of Christ's supremacy, let's get into this narrative and see how his supremacy looks like in the ministry and the life of John the Baptist and his disciples. And let's see what their response looks like. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Let me stop there. Now, from two weeks ago, we know that Jesus and his disciples had been in the city of Jerusalem. We know that he had cleansed the temple. We know that he had performed a number of signs and he had spoken with Nicodemus. They now leave the city of Jerusalem and made their way into the countryside. And while remaining there on an unknown period of time, the disciples of our Lord start baptizing those who come to them. You see, in John 4, 2, we, we read that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So his disciples are baptizing those who are coming to them. At the same time, the Baptist and his disciples, they are also baptizing. So... We can expect that John's baptism had not changed from what it had always been. In fact, his baptism was uh, um, represented. His baptism was about repentance and being ready for the coming of the Messiah. And the baptism of our Lord and his disciples was representative of the same thing. You see. The Lord's disciples could not baptize in any other way. Christ had not been crucified. He had not been buried. He had not risen from the dead. Therefore, the baptism was the same. Now, in verse 24, John, the evangelist, gives us a small commentary. He says, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. This small commentary, he puts there as... Wanting for us to know his unique, this unique period of simultaneous ministry that none of the other Gospels describe, but is the setting for which perceives 
a distress, a dispute that arises. This dispute arises because our Lord's success in his ministry at this time is greater than John's. So let's take a look. On verse 25 it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Here we are introduced to a dispute between the disciples of John and a Jew who argue over, over purification. We are not told much here, but obviously this Jew is resistant to the Baptist message and to his baptism. Maybe this Jew is just arguing with his disciples back and forth over which one is superior. Are the Jewish rites superior or is John the Baptist and his baptism and his message superior? But somehow this conversation seems to gravitate to a comparison of John the Baptist with that of Jesus. Somehow, this dispute appears to prompt the disciples of John the Baptist to return to John with their concern, not about the Jew and what he was talking about, but about Jesus. We are not told what is said in this dispute, but it's obvious that at some point there was a comparison being made concerning Jesus. Let's read their words one more time. It says, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John's disciples returned to him frustrated and upset, not with the Jew, but with Jesus. They are frustrated that Jesus and his disciples are more successful than they are. In fact, they almost seem distressed at John the Baptist. They are irritated that he has done nothing to remedy the situation. In fact, it seems that they are resenting him for pointing the crowds to Jesus. Pom Vista, does his supremacy, does it frustrate you? Point number two, does it frustrate you? You see, the words spoken by John's disciples give them away. Christ's supremacy had become for them the cause to their frustration. The first thing that they do is that they ignore his identity. They are ignoring his identity. Although they had heard the witness of, ba of the Baptist, they ignored it. They don't even call him by name or refer to him as Messiah. Though John the Baptist does. second point that they're doing is they're jealous of his success. They are jealous of his success. Although Christ's ultimate success was what John the Baptist's proclamation was all about. Church, men, ladies, youth, singles, are we more aware of who we are or do we set our sights on who Christ is? Do our lives revolve around our identity and what we want or do they point to Christ's identity and what He wants? Are we more worried about what others think about us or more worried about what others think about Christ? Are we jealous, 
for our success and pleasure? Or are we jealous for Christ, His success and His pleasure? Now let me point out in their words, their last phrase. Their last phrase goes like this. And all are going to Him. It is obvious to us that they saw Christ, not as the Messiah, to come, but they saw Christ as their competition. His supremacy, church, does it tempt you to compete? Point number three in your notes. Now, before someone calls me out on heresy, I want to make something clear. God does not tempt anyone. You see, James 1.13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But the only reason why I use this choice of words to describe these disciples is because it is obvious to us that their understanding about Christ was so wrong and perverted that it leads them not only to frustration, but also to temptation to a temptation of competing for His supremacy. And James once again helps us out. If we keep reading after 13, verse 14 tells us, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, church, we too, like these disciples, are often tempted by our own evil cravings for supremacy and our own evil desires to be superior to Christ. I myself are often tempted to compete with Christ for attention and for recognition. To have the crowds come to me and not to Him. To take credit for what which He has so graciously given me by His supreme sovereignty. I am also tempted in church We cannot compete with Christ. We cannot compete with Christ. So let's look at John the Baptist's answer to his disciples. And let's look at his response in his model of humility and Christian servanthood. In his model of rejoicing in the supremacy of Christ. His supremacy, church. Does it lead you to complete joy? John answers, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist understood that what he had received, he had received from God. That his God-given ministry was not to be the Messiah, but to introduce the Messiah. He was the forerunner. Jesus was the fulfillment, the perfect grand finale. And in order to illustrate this truth to them and to us this morning, He uses this vivid image of a wedding. 
And in this image, we see that Jesus is the bridegroom. John is the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom is not frustrated or jealous to take his, uh, when the bridegroom appears at the wedding celebration. In fact, the friend of the bridegroom is joyous. And just as it was a custom, the friend's task is to bring the bride and the groom together. And when the voice of the groom is heard, the friend of the groom rejoices because his task is over. He has brought the bride to the bridegroom. And they are married. And at the sight of the bridegroom's success, the friend of the bridegroom's joy is made complete. Brothers and sisters, being a disciple of Christ is not merely thinking right or acting right. It is definitely not just praying a prayer and asking Jesus to come into your heart. It isn't merely congregating in church or even serving. It is loving Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It is loving Him above all else, including yourself. It is being able to see and to feel what God is worthy of and is finding your deepest joy in His supremacy. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the quote is in your notes, God is glorified when men see His supremacy and understand it truly. But God is more glorified when we not only see it and understand it, but when also our emotions correspond to His worth and we rejoice in it. You see, John the Baptist doesn't stop here. He actually says, wait, wait guys, hold on. I know what I've told you already, but there's more. If you think Jesus' success has peaked and that my humbleness has ceased, you're wrong. And verse 30, he tells them, we must, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I believe that what the Baptist is communicating to his disciples and to us this morning is he's saying this to them. He's saying, I am totally dependent on God. He is immeasurably less valuable, uh, more valuable than I am. I'm sorry. And this makes my joy complete. That is what he's saying to them. O Palm Vista, may we join John the Baptist in saying, I am dependent on Christ and He is immeasurably more valuable than I am. And His supremacy makes my joy complete. Church, we find our deepest joys in the supremacy of Christ. It is the key to everything. It is the key to our service of God and others. It is the key to leading our families it is the key of loving our, to, to loving our spouses. It is the key of effective ministry, overcoming sin. It is the very key of life. It is the difference between your marriage being about your happiness and not about exalting His glory. It is the difference between your money being about your pleasures and not expanding His kingdom. It is the difference between your serving and your ministry being about your personal fulfillment 
and not about taking up your cross and following Him. It is the difference between your job being about your success and not about His faithfulness. It is the difference between sex being about fulfilling your appetites and not about God's grace in marriage. It is the difference between your reputation being more important than giving the grace of forgiveness. Church, it is the difference between coming to Christ as one looking for fire insurance and one coming to Christ as your supreme bridegroom who is supreme in beauty and majesty and who is supreme joy of your life. Are you frustrated with His supremacy? Are you competing with His supremacy? Or are you rejoicing in His supremacy? Let us pray. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) Please forgive me. Oh, Lord. Father, I want to start praying this morning by asking for forgiveness, Lord. Please forgive me when I am frustrated and when I compete with your supremacy. Father, help me, Lord, see you as glorious and beautiful as you are, Lord. Help me see you for who you truly are, Lord, that my joy may be complete as I behold you and your Son, and not as I look to myself. Lord, we thank you that you are supreme. We thank you, Lord, that there is someone we can turn to. That there, that there is someone who is worthy of our gaze. That there is someone, Lord, that is worthy of all our praise. That is worthy of all our emotions, all our joy. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us.
Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord. Exalt him above all things. Exalt him above our pleasures. Exalt him about, uh, above our desires. Exalt him above our family, our lives. Exalt him above our jobs. Exalt him above everything. Help us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.